Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week we finished with Moses face to face with the angel in the burning bush, having turned aside to see this remarkable side of a bush that was burning but was not consumed. This week will be quite expositional, so it might be helpful if you have your Bible on hand and you can follow through with me verse by verse. Uh, We're reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, "Here, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed press them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God calls to Moses out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And the doubling of the name denotes and indicates intensity. The Hebrew language doesn't have some of the features that the English language has. For example, when we want to indicate an increase in intensity, we say things like big, bigger, biggest. The Hebrew simply repeats the word. It doesn't have those different forms. So, for example, in Genesis 14, where it talks about deep or big pits, it simply says in the Hebrew, pits, pits. When the scripture says, holy, 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 it's not that the writer can't think of other words. He's simply saying, holy, holier, holiest. That that thrice repeated, holy, 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 uh, indicates increased intensity. So ironically, as Moses is being drawn close by this emotionally intense call, he's also warned not to come too close. Draw near, uh, do not draw near rather, take off your shoes. And we'll see the same in chapter 17 when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, they are told, gather round but, but stay back. And that gather round but stay back reflects a, pr- a profound conundrum of how does a holy God draw near to and dwell with a sinful people? 
And it's a question that's posed many times in the Old Testament. For example, it's the question of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, where both say in various forms, who may abide in your tabernacle and how can we come into your holy hill? Isaiah 33, 14 says, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? There's a massive gulf that seemingly can't be bridged between a holy God and sinful people. Job lamented that fact in chapter 9 when he's saying, There's no mediator, there's no daysman between me and God. There's nobody that can reach out and touch both sides. The book of Leviticus deals, deals really with that same problem. With all its laws and regulations, it's essentially an attempt to try and allow, uh, to make possible the dwelling of a holy God in the midst of a sinful people. The tabernacle in the midst of Israel's encampment would be equivalent to placing a nuclear reactor in the midst of a residential housing estate in our day. And Leviticus is, in some senses, uh, an instruction manual for, for the neighbours, and it could be subtitled, How Not to Be Killed by uh, an Exposure to Unwanted Radiation, or in this case, Holiness. The ultimate problem is solved uh, in the coming of Job's ultimate and fulfilled daysman mediator in terms of Jesus Christ. He's the one who will come and join both sides together and make full and final atonement, tearing the curtain and making possible a way into God's holy presence without being totally destroyed. At this point in the story, Moses is simply told he's on holy ground and that he should take off his shoes. Come, but be careful. The removal of the shoes seems to be uh, a, a way of preventing him to coming rashly, intruding ra rashly into God's presence and to teach him that God is very separate from and distinct from mortal human beings. Joshua, of course, in chapter 5 was told to do exactly the same thing when he encountered the angel of the Lord. Some scholars talk about the fact that the priests who served in the tabernacle served barefoot, walking softly before God. Others have suggested that slaves always approach their masters bare feet and that perhaps God was simply asserting his authority over Moses in this instance. We, we know that even today the removal of the shoes is a mark of respect in oriental circles. Others have said that the removal of the shoes symbolized the putting aside of that which had been defiled by, by contact with the earth. Perhaps there's truth in all of those things. And Moses taking off his shoes was a lesson in simple obedience that we should humbly bow to whatever it is that God requires of us. Just before we get into the conversation that ensues, let me draw your attention again to uh, an aside that I've mentioned a number of times in the studies, an amazing parallel between Exodus and Genesis, between Moses and Noah, between Moses and Jacob. Remember, Jacob and Moses both fled from home to avoid somebody's wrath, both went to faraway relatives, both helped a woman at the well, uh, marrying one of them. Both ended up working for in-laws, and the parallel continues in numerous other ways. Jacob, Jacob, like Moses, had a significant encounter with God in Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 through 4. God appears to Jacob, and there's the double name call, Jacob, Jacob. There's exactly the same response as Moses gave, here I am. There's the same self-identity, I am the God of your fathers. There's the same promise of divine presence, I will be with you. And in both cases, there's, uh, you will go down into Egypt and you will come back. You know, the story of God is rich in these kinds of almost repeat 
performances. Split ends might say history never repeats, but Mark Twain says while it never repeats, it often rhymes. History marches on, generations come and go, but there's a constancy in God's dealings. So God proceeds to reveal himself to Moses, and in, chapter, in, in verse 5, there's a revelation of his nature, what he is. We see he's holy. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. In verse 6, we have a revelation of his identity, who he is. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Amram, Moses' father. And then he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Up until this point, Moses actually didn't know who this flaming figure was. This statement removes all doubt. This is Yahweh. Another aside, in the New Testament, Jesus actually uses this very scripture as an argument with the Sadducees about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus pointed out, referring to this passage, that the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He isn't the God of the living, Jesus says. He's the God, he isn't the God of the dead, Jesus said. He's the God of the living. And they continue to live, and he continues to be their God. In verse 7, we have a revelation of his feelings, how he feels, his compassion. I've seen the oppression. I've seen the cry. You know, I was recently told by someone that they were told not to cry when they were praying because God couldn't hear them when they were crying. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that that's, quite frankly, religious nonsense. Psalm chapter 6, verse 8 says, The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. And it appears here that tears have a voice all of their own. Our tears are precious to him. In fact, Psalm 56, verse 8 says, He, he stores them up in his bottle and he records them in his book. And so God says, I know their sorrows. Um, that word know, by the way, is the Hebrew word yada, and it's a very intense word. It's much more than intellectual awareness. It's the word used to describe sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. He is one with their afflictions. That's why Isaiah 63 says, in all their affliction, he, God, was afflicted. He was joined with their afflictions. And I know some people listening to me today might be, uh, are probably feeling desolate, alone, unheard and unseen. And I want to say to you, you aren't. He sees, he hears, he knows. In verse 8, we have a revelation of his purposes, what he does. So it says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egypt, Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a land, a good land, a large land flowing with milk and honey. You know, when God is about to do something extraordinary, the Bible often says that he comes down. Now that's of course what we call anthropomorphic language, which means that it's written in a way that you and I as human beings can readily understand. In one sense, God doesn't come down anywhere because he doesn't need to. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. And yet it does seem that there are special times when his presence is manifestly present. So we say in those instances, God has come down. Later in Exodus chapter 19 verse 11 it says the Lord says on the third day I will come down on Mount Sinai. Obviously he was there before that but there was something special about his presence there. In Isaiah 64 verse 3 the, the, uh, Isaiah cries out oh that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down and then the mountains would shake at your presence. You know that's the great prayer for revival, for reawakening, for visitation. Please come down and do something special. And then in Micah chapter 1 verse 3 it says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. 
You know, the ultimate coming down, of course, is the incarnation where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Or as the message says, he came down and moved into our neighborhood. God came down in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In coming down to deliver Israel, God says that he's going to take them out of Egypt and bring them to the land of Canaan. And I want you to see there that deliverance is, is always from something, but always to something as well. You know, in our culture, when we think about freedom, we imagine that it's freedom from, but we never put the second part of that in and say, and freedom to come to something. For us, freedom is to do what we like and to live as we want. And we usually add the dubious proviso, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, as if we had a way or even the desire to measure that. So in that sense, in our culture, freedom becomes totally individualistic and it amounts to everyone doing that which is right in their own eyes. But biblical freedom is not a liberation from all restraints. I remember a missionary in an African nation describing what would happen uh, as that nation gained independence from Britain. And he said the Bible school students were very excited about the possibility of being able to ride on any side of the road they wanted to and to ignore traffic signals if they wanted to. They thought freedom would be freedom to do absolutely as they like. But freedom to do what you like isn't actually freedom. It ends as a denial of liberty and ends up being the overthrow of freedom. You know, historically, times of anarchy, which is what that so-called freedom is, always leads to chaos, which ultimately leads to a search for order, and into that vacuum always steps a new tyranny. If you read history or you're a student of history, you'll know that Political movements like fascism and Nazism always gain traction in times of chaos. People have done whatever they like. It's led to chaos. People long for order and into that steps authoritarian leadership. Hannah Arendt, a political philosopher and author and a Holocaust survivor, in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, explained that people are most vulnerable to totalitarian control when they are disconnected, atomistic individuals. Freedom from without freedom to doesn't remain freedom for long. This might be a bit hard for some of us to hear, but Exodus moves from one form of servitude and slavery to another form of servitude. The slavery in Egypt is described in the Hebrew by a word abota, and it occurs as a verb uh, or a noun seven times in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. The Israelites were in Abotah to the Egyptians. As the, uh, the Israelites are taken from Egyptian slavery, they are brought to the worship and service of Yahweh. And in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, You shall serve, and the Hebrew word is Abotah, God on this mountain. And then in chapter 4, verse 23, Let my son go that he may, Abotah, serve me. So we move from one form of servitude to another form. Scripture suggests that we are all slaves. No exceptions, no exemptions. We all take orders from someone or something. An important implication of Jesus' words that no man can serve two masters is that everyone will serve one. As Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. The difference comes in the nature of the master that we serve. The master we are committed to determines the nature of our bondage. Perhaps you're not convinced and you say to me, Don, I'm nobody's slave. 
Well, you're not the first and you won't be the last to say that. Remember in John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking about this very thing and the Jews say to him, we are the offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, where he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, he says, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Let me reread that to you in the message translation, which I think captures the idea very well. So, since we are out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any way we want? Freedom from, but not freedom to. Since we are free from in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly, he says. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that actually destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God and freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started to listening to a new master, one, who commands, uh, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. To push that point a little further, one of the key words of Exodus and, of course, of the Bible is the word redemption. And the word redemption is inextricably tied up with the idea of slavery. It comes from the slave market and it literally means to buy back. We were slaves on the block for sale. We were slaves to sin. And Jesus enters the context and contest and steps into the market and buys us back at the price of his own blood. We were never redeemed to do our own thing. It's not just freedom from, but it's freedom from and freedom to. We are called to serve and worship the one who saves us. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You know, that makes a mockery of the often heard cry, my body, my choice. One who has been redeemed and bought back, can I suggest to you it's not your body, it's his temple. The blessed paradox is that we've exchanged one bondage for another. Freedom from the old Adamic order, which is Egypt, does not constitute the freedom to do our own thing. That's why Paul says, shall I go on sinning? Hardly, he says, God forbid. The new freedom constitutes the freedom to function in relationship to God and to bring our redeemed faculties under his rule so that they can be restored to the divine intention. Freedom is not found in ignoring law. It's not found in, in, in the chaos of antinomianism. It is found in obeying it. You know, you're free to fly only when you obey the laws of aerodynamics. Obey the laws and the sky is yours. You know, I suspect up until this point in the conversation, Moses would have been absolutely thrilled. God has said, I'm going to step in and I'm going to redeem your people. And I can imagine Moses saying, at last you're going to act. We've waited so long for this. Verse 10, however, drastically changes how he feels because God says, come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And the shock of that statement reverberates through the next chapter and a half. Verse 11 begins, but Moses said to God, 
Now, what reflects what this reflects is the great change that's come over Moses. At 40, um, he, he is all ready to be the self-styled deliverer of Egypt, but now not so much. And he responds to this commission with understandable hesitation and humility, and then with increasing desperation to try and avoid it. He, he wasn't the last person to question God's commission. Gideon did it on the basis of his youthfulness and family connections, as did Saul. Solomon was hesitant about his inexperience and Jeremiah about his youthfulness. And here Moses manifests a deep sense of personal inadequacy. Perhaps he was thinking about his abject failure 40 years ago. Maybe he was thinking, I'm, I'm 80. This is not the customary age for a national deliverer to launch a campaign. God's answer to his inadequacy is that his presence will be there. I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. What matters is who is with you. You know, the interesting thing is God doesn't argue with Moses' self-estimate. He actually accepts it. I think if we were speaking to Moses, shaped as we are by our self-esteem culture, we would, we would have said, come on, Moses, you, you can do this. You can do and be anything you want. Think positive, follow your dreams, believe in yourself. God says nothing of the kind. Of course you aren't up to it, he says. This commission is way above your paid grade, and no amount of self-belief or positive talk will change that. God absolutely accepts Moses' sense of inadequacy as one of the facts of the situation, but he counts, counters it by the adequacy of his presence. He met Moses' inadequacy with the pledge of his own adequacy, and no one who goes at the behest of God ever goes alone. Moses moves from verse 13 saying, who am I, to now asking, well, who are you? Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Interestingly enough, if you read through the story, the children of Israel never asked that question. Perhaps it was Moses putting his own question in the mouth of somebody else. It's a common technique. We say, what would you say if somebody else asked you? Well, Moses actually wants to know the answer. What is, what is your name? Now, I've already pointed out the parallels between Moses and Jacob, and here we have another. In Genesis 32, Jacob has an incredible encounter with God, and he asks the same question that Moses did. Please, tell me your name. On that occasion, God returns the compliment. What is your name? Now, this isn't just simply an exchange of business cards. There's much more going on than simply introductions. God asked Jacob his name, not because he didn't know it, but because he was about to change it. And from, it was to move from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, a prince with God. Jacob asked God his name, not because he didn't know it. He'd actually used it earlier in the chapter when he was praying. He wants a deeper, more clearer revelation of what that name entails, a fuller understanding of God's character and God's power. And it's the same for Moses. What is your name? The Hebrew word for name is Shem, and it means much more than a handle that somebody is called by. It stands for the person, their character, their fame, their honor, their reputation. It expresses the nature and operation of God. We use the word name in that way when we say, my good name is at stake. Moses is not necessarily implying that he has no knowledge of God's name. He's rather asking for a fuller, deeper revelation. And in verse 14, in response to Moses' question, we have that famous enigmatic reply that without doubt conceals as much as it reveals. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Translations of that phrase vary. I am 
who I am, I will be what I will be, I am who I will be, they're all options. Amongst other things, this formulation suggests a divine faithfulness to the self. Whenever God is being God, God will be the kind of God that God is. There's no arbitrariness, there's no capriciousness, there's, he can be trusted, he is the same always, every day, yesterday, today and forever. One scholar commenting on this formula called it the isness of God. It suggests, he says, an active presence in all seasons, in all eventualities, in all tasks, in all needs. It's an open-ended assertion of sufficiency. So Moses, whatever you need, I am the answer. We've already seen Moses is shaken and unsteady and he, he could have he did respond, I'm, I'm not up to this task. I don't have the resources. And it's as if God says, I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm the one who provides. I'm Jehovah Gibor. I'm the Lord who is mighty. By the way, Jehovah is just the Latinization of, of Yahweh. So it could be Yahweh Jireh if you wanted it to be that. So Moses could have, could have counted, well, Lord, I don't have the character. And God would say, I'm Jehovah Sidkenu, I'm the Lord, your righteousness. Or I'm Jehovah Makadesh, I'm the one who sanctifies you. Moses might have then said, but, but Lord, I don't know the way to Canaan. And the Lord says, I'm Jehovah Ra'ah, I'm the Lord who shepherds you. I'll lead you there. And he says, but, but, but how will the people gather to me? There's nothing in me that they will gather to. And the Lord says, but I'm Jehovah Nisai, the Lord, your banner. I will lift up the banner and they will gather to that. In desperation, Moses could have said, I feel a bit sick. And God would have said, I'm Jehovah Rofoy, the Lord who heals you. Uh, I'd rather be somebody else or somewhere else. Could I, could I not take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth? And God would say, I'm Jehovah Shammah. I'm the one who is there. There's no way out of this for Moses. Now, I can't pass from the revelation of God's name to Moses without making reference to the New Testament and noting the extent to which Jesus of Nazareth identified with and laid claim for himself, that great name, the, the great I am. Of course, you know that sometimes he does it indirectly. Sometimes it's followed by a predicate. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Other times, much to the shock of his contemporaries, he just claimed it directly. So to the Jews, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And then in John chapter 18, when the rabble are coming to arrest him in the garden, he says to them, who have you come for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he steps forward and says, I am. And they all fall to the ground. Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do only what Yahweh does. This is the dynamic truth of the deity of Christ. And how appropriate it is that when commissioning his disciples, he uses the words that Moses heard Yahweh say to him. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Go into the world. Lo, I am with you always. Our task as Jesus' disciples is as daunting as Moses' was, quite impossible without his presence. Nevertheless, he says, I'm adequate, I'm sufficient. There's no way in which our emerging needs and ever-changing circumstances and demands will catch him out, prove him inadequate, or reach the end of his resources and completeness. I am. I am what you need. You need healing. I am that. You need sufficiency. I'm that. You need righteousness. I, I'm that. Moses initially thinks, I can't, I can't, so I won't. Patiently, he is brought by Yahweh in this encounter to the place where he says, I can't, but he can, so I will. 
And it's exactly the same for you and I. I can't. He can. I will. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.